Welcome, trail and ultra runners, to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I am your host, Jason Coop, and on today's podcast, we have somebody with quite a prolific history in trail and ultra running, going back all the way to the early 1990s, Bob Crowley. And Bob, I'm sorry in advance for somewhat kind of outing your age. I don't think you will be offended, but Bob has been around the trail and ultra running scene for many, many, many years. He's done races like the Hard Rock, Western States. And then just this summer, he did the notorious Tour de Géants over in Italy. And I finally got to, I finally got to meet him in person. But Bob's prolific trail and ultra running career isn't the reason why he is here today. He is also the new president of ITRA, the International Trail Running Association. And as we discuss in the podcast, this is not something that a lot of North American trail runners really have any concept of. And so I wanted to bring him on the podcast and give him a little bit of a floor to discuss what ITRA is all about, what their mission is, and how it can actually improve trail and ultra running as we know it today. I also wanted to take advantage a little bit of Bob's uh, background in venture capitalism, where he works over at the Mustang Group, and discuss what the future of trail running actually looks like. He has his finger on the pulse of this uh, to a great extent, as you guys can all imagine. I found the conversation really fun. I hope that it enlightens everybody out there that is unfamiliar with what ITRA's mission is and what they uh, kind of strive to do with trail and ultra running. So kick back, perk your ears up, and here is my conversation all about ITRA and the future of trail running with Bob Crowley. What's new over there? Uh, yeah, a lot going on, to be honest. Um, we have uh, a lot of initiatives, a lot of change. It's, <laughs> it's only been two and a half weeks. I feel like I've been at this for about six years. <laughs> it's all good. But. Well, when we got together offline, I described your new role at ITRA as kind of like drinking from a fire hose. But I, I just read in Ultra Running Magazine... It, correct me if I get the stat wrong, that only two out of 10 people in the U.S. know what ITRA is. Is that correct? Yeah, that's my stat. Yeah, we did a survey and two out of 10 had heard of it. So maybe it's and, like, maybe instead of drinking from a fire hose, it's like drinking from a fire hose in the middle of the forest of which nobody knows anything about. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, one of the, the advantages of the fact that nobody in the U.S. at least knows what it is, is, is that we don't have to undo the brand. We can start new. That's okay because the brand isn't well known. And I'd rather establish it for the first time than to have 10 out of 10 think that UTMB is ITRA, which is what essentially the other two that do know what it is. They either think it's ATRA right. or they think it's UTMB. So nobody really understands in the U.S. what ITRA is. That's 100%. Um, and the, two, the, the, the 20% that do have it confused with, understandably, because of Michelle's close proximity, um, that they think they're synonymous with UTMB or they confuse it with ATRA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what, do you know what that stat is over in Europe in terms of how many people know what ITRA is? It's, it's close to 100%. Really? So, okay. Yeah. 
So right particularly the- if it, if you said France, I'd say ninety to a hundred. If if you said Spain, same Italy, close. Um, it drops off a little bit in Eastern Europe. You've you've got this really interesting like, kind of problem, right? Where it's so prevalent in one area of the world and not prevalent in the in another area of the world. Why I can imagine that a lot of this has to do with the European roots, but why does everybody in Europe, or all, at least all trail runners in Europe, know about Itra, and yet hardly anybody in the U.S. does? There's probably two reasons. It was formed in 2012, and then officially came into existence 2013. And the original meeting was in Comayer, um, a place you and I both know, and. Uh, and then moved to Chamonix. So the office is in Chamonix. And if you look at the original founders, the large majority of them were French. And there's a couple of non-French. And so, you know, the organization began very, um, not just Europe-centric, but Western Europe-centric. In the U.S. in particular, um, we have a, a very mature trail running history, 40 years plus. And it's very fragmented. And what I mean by that is there's thousands of races. And um, those have been started years and years ago by individuals that it started with fat asses, you know, free races, unmarked, and then evolved to charities where people would do a run for fun and maybe raise some money for the landowner or for um, whoever it may be a charity. And, and that's the way we grew up very fragmented one at a time. And so 40 years later, if you have an organization like ITRA come along and if it's perceived that somehow ITRA is trying to organize all of these, uh, wild Mustangs, <laughs> that's a, uh, that's going to, you're going to have a lot of resistance and, and let's face it, there's no, a voice that represents American trail running. There's no individual, there's no organization that everybody gets underneath and says, yeah, she's speaking for me. It just, it's never going to happen because you're never going to get thousands of Mustangs rounded up and put saddles on them. It's way too late for that. So if each is perceived by North Americans and particularly Americans as some sort of governing body, which it's not, and it's going to mandate rules and regulations and uh, et cetera, then Americans will resist to that because they'll say, thanks, but we already have that covered and and some, we don't really need any help. It's not what we do, but that's part of our opportunity here in America. And then around the rest of the world is to explain what we do. And I think it will be of great value to the North American market as well as the rest of the world. But needless to say, we have our biggest, uh, our, our greatest discerning client or customer here is is America. Well, so here you've got the platform right now because I'm I'm in the the two out of ten Americans that actually know what Etra is, and I would say a hundred percent of that two out of the ten Americans that know who Etra is has been over to Europe and has had to interface with them in some form or capacity. So as you're, you know, as you're kind of like taking on this new role, here's the big platform. When you speak to ultra runners, either individually or in mass, like is what's going to come out on this podcast, 
like what's your what's your kind of pitch to them on what Itra is and who you serve and what your primary goals and, and, and purpose is going to be as you're moving into North America? We have two mandates and, and it's pretty straightforward. One is to um, teach the values, the ethos of the trail running community, which we believe, and certainly my own experience racing around the world, is the same all over. So kind of one heart, one trail, one heart. We all share the same ethos. So we teach it and then we try to protect it. And and what I mean by that is we've studied other sports. Certainly in my my day job is as, as an entrepreneur and now private equity, we study markets and we look for trends. And in trail running, we went back and looked at mountain biking and triathlons. And those were both very small uh, you know, communities that had deep cultures. And along the way, both those sports grew rapidly and the values got tossed to the side or trampled. And you ask why, what happened? Well, larger organizations came in and took advantage of the growth and made a lot of money. And they put in their own culture and their own infrastructure and they really didn't care as much about the ethos as they did about making money. And I'm not, I'm not, look, I'm a moneymaker too. So I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad, but that's what happened. In trail running, we have an opportunity to get in front of that before it's too late and think that, that what makes the sport unique and why many of us come to it and then never leave is the ethos and the values. And so we're here to teach those to new members coming into the community and then to protect them. So work with the larger organizations to make sure that we don't lose the values as they grow. We want them to grow. We want them to come in. We just want to be sure that they understand why those values are so important. Because frankly, if you do, it'll help your business grow better because we're very smart uh, trail runners. And we know the difference between somebody that's putting on um, an event that really is uh, indicative of what we believe and one that's just trying to, you know, make money. We're, we're very discerning. Yeah. But at the same time, the the mass in trail running right now, as you are very well aware of, and we're going to get into some of the stats and statistics later, is not so big that a bigger company can't come in and just overwhelm the whole system, the whole ecosystem of trail races and trail runners, simply because the number that they're trying to overwhelm is so small. And we're, we're starting to see some of those bigger players starting, starting to come in like Spartan who's coming into the trail, uh, trail and ultra scene. And we're also seeing, uh, players like lifetime fitness kind of come in through, uh, through the Ludville trail 100 and others. And, I can, you know, kind of hark back to the time where uh, Leadville sold that race series to Lifetime. And uh, before I go on, Leadville is a race that is very near and, and, and dear to my heart personally. It was the first 100-mile ultramarathon that I did. The race director, Ken Clover, was the officiant of my wedding. It, you know, it's only a couple of hours away from my house. It was very influential in a lot of different aspects for, for, for me personally. And I don't want people to think that I'm like poo-pooing on uh, lifetime fitness coming in and buying it. But suffice it to say, I think a general consensus is, is when those bigger organizations came in with is specifically with the example of Leadville, it was a rough transition. 
I mean, I don't think anybody would deny that. I think the first few years that Lifetime Fitness tried to run this iconic ultra marathon in the Leadville Trail 100, they 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 had their hiccups, and those hiccups didn't act, didn't need to happen. I mean, there were people and blueprints around, and advocates in the area that were trying to steer them the right way. And for but for whatever reason, it started it started to go awry. So is 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 that a good analog to something that you are trying to like smooth out with ITRA is just making, like you said, making those values constantly and consistently communicated like across the board when other entities come into the play? It's a good beta test, I think. And I'm going to, I'm going to address Leadville and then come back to my running club in New England called the trail animals running club. Leadville is a great story because it is a case in point in the U.S. where a larger organization, in this case Lifetime, um, was beginning to work with the traditional race directors that grew up in in that world that that we know. Very family-oriented, small community. A lot of people would come back to that race every year. It's a tradition, right? And somewhere the ball was dropped in understanding the delicacy of that culture and how important it was to maintain traditions and do things a certain way to keep those people coming back. And um, for whatever reason that happened, our role at ITRA is to really anticipate potential um, misunderstandings or maybe it's just naivety, and to try to work with the organizations and with runners. So, you know, it's grassroots to teach runners the best way to learn the ethos of trail running is to go out on a trail run with somebody that knows it. That's how we all learn. Um, so that's more obvious. And we have an outreach program to get very grassroots to do that. But for organizations, it's a little different. And there you have to um, try to get their attention. And, and rather than them feeling like you're trying to preach to them or that you're trying to hold them back in some way, that, that, that there's, there's some you know secret handshake that only is for the people that come from trail running and not for the outsiders. It's, it's the least thing on my mind. I want these people to come in and I'll come to that a little bit later as to why, how, how important they are to our future. But part of the deal, the quid pro pro here is that we teach them, look, if you, and I'll use an analogy of a church, if you want to join a community and, and and it's a church, the best thing to do is to come in, you sit in the back, and you sing the hymns and you read the prayers and you listen to the preacher. And then you, you go and have coffee and, and, uh, and croissants and you, you integrate slowly. That's normal. And, and you get accepted and you get loved and you get brought in and, and you're going to feel part of that community pretty quickly. What you don't want to do is rush in through the back of the church and bust open the doors and run to the front and push the preacher off the pulpit and start preaching. And there's a temptation when you've been successful in other marketplaces, financially successful and grown businesses rapidly to presume that whatever worked in that place, in that particular segment is going to be carbon copy available and working in, in another. And in this particular case, trail running has some unique characteristics. If you understand them and appreciate them and, and take them on board, you're going to have a better business than if you just try to run them over or you even worse, try to 
turn those behaviors to something that you want. You want to bend people to your way. This is not a, um, a sport where that's going to go down easy. And it not just in the U.S. The, you know, we've been you know, trail runners have been around a long time. There's a long history. And um, and one of the things that we all exhibit in our values is we're very independent and we're very self-sufficient and we're very stubborn. And those things work great if you get that and they can really work against you if you don't understand that. Now, in the trail animals, it's a 19 mid mid sort of late 80s, early 90s. We started the trail animals and it's just a local club in Boston. It serves New England and it started with 10, 20 people. A long story short, there's almost 7,000 members today in trail animals, 12 races, 4,000 runners a year. It's actually a pretty good sized club as trail running clubs go. But when, when we started to grow rapidly, the, the founders all sat around and said, let's make sure that we don't allow the growth to overrun the values. And it's the same ethos that, you know, we have around the world. And we really made a concerted effort to say, while we're teaching people how to run and how to train and how to eat and how to race, let's teach them the values simultaneously. Let's make the same priority. And, you know, here we are many, many years later, almost 25 years later, and I can, I can put my hand on my heart and attest that the Trail Animals Running Club is no different today than it is back when we had it in the, in the late 80s and 90s. The only difference is we have a huge number of members. But I think to a person, the members understand that the values are to the front. And For they sure. teach each other. It's, you know, it's self-fulfilling, right? So if you, if you do that properly, the members teach the other members. And you don't have to... In my church analogy, you don't have to be, you know, in the church, in the pew every Sunday. You can just learn it all out and out in the trails themselves. And so that that model is another beta test for us to say, can ITRA do this on a global basis? I think they can. I think we can. And so what does that – so you're, you're kind of charged with – one of the things that you're charged with is bringing ITRA into the North American audience – from a really practical, like ground level perspective, from the viewpoint of a trail runner that's going to one of your trail races or to another trail race that they have there locally, what does that actually look like? What, like, what will they notice, or if they do, they notice anything at all in terms of how Itra starts to become involved in all of these different, numerous, and kind of fractured races. Well, I think it's a great question. Today, there are approximately 70 national representatives, which are people that have been elected to, to ITRA to represent their region or their territory. And, and they're charged with being the local representative um, to go to the races and clubs and help teach people about ITRA, but also remind them about the, uh, the values. Okay. Does that work? Um, it depends. It depends upon the the country and the national representative. I, I believe ITRA has failed in giving our national representatives a clear um, mission. And we failed in giving them the proper tools to go out and do what we want them to do. And we're in the midst of correcting that. But, but I think in the past, it's been 
it's been touch and go. Some, some national representatives are enormously effective, others, you know, not so much. And there needs to be continuity and consistency there. We also need to spend more time reaching out to the national and regional associations like ATRA here in the U.S. And, you know, they're a, they're a very, very necessary partner in, and we're partners with them. But we don't really do anything more than say that. We need to actually be doing something with them in conjunction with them. And there, there's hundreds of ATRAs around the world that, that are in various countries who know where the trail runners are. They have their own memberships. They're the same members we have. And it, it seems incredulous to me that we don't embrace them and work with them and figure out how together, right, we can teach and reinforce these values. So that's another area that we have to improve, and we will. Another one, frankly, is the brands. So brands are um, interested in trail running because it's growing at a click of about 10% or so a year. And it has been for the last 10 or 15 years. It's the only part of running in the world that's growing consistently. Rest of running is flat to down. Trail running's growing. And so that always attracts the attention of a good brand because there's an opportunity to sell their, their goods and services. Um, but again, we wanna make sure the brands understand our ethos and that when they outre- they have outreach to our athletes and to our runners, that it's all done as part of the community. And so they can be an asset for us to, to reach out to the, to the runners. And we can also help them understand what are the kinds of products and services you want to bring to the market that will resonate, right, with this kind of trail runner, with this ethos. So that's, that's another area where we probably haven't worked in as close in conjunction with the brands but we will. And the last, of course, is the organizers, the race organizers, as we started this discussion and um, not to go back over that, but it's obvious that we need to work with um, the thousands of races that exist all over the world and the hundreds, um, if not thousands of race directors so that um, they can put on safe, fair, um, you know, um, enjoyable, fun events, um, fill their rosters, you know, you know, as many runners as they see fit. And, and that at the end of the day, you know, the, the athletes finish and say that was a great race and this was a great event, but you know, it's the community that I'm really turned on by. It's when I get to the finish line and everybody's like sitting around and waiting for me or cheering me on, I'm a nobody. And yet I feel like somebody and I'm on the track with a lot of somebodies, a lot of like world-class athletes that are either out there with me or they're sitting there at the finish line and they're giving me a high five and they're telling me what a great job I did. That's pretty unique in this world of sports. And we don't want to lose that under any circumstances because, you know, it draws us in and it keeps us in. So you have this like multi-level approach where you're reaching out to like the more natural, the more national organized or the more uh, nationally kind of recognized organizations like ATRA. You're reaching out to the brands who have presence both here in the U.S. domestically and then also abroad. And then you're also reaching out to the individual races. And I've got this matrix now going in my head where the last group, the races, all the wild Mustangs, if you, Mustangs, is that 
the analogy you used earlier? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. All the wild Mustangs that are out there, that, that that's the one that that poses the greatest challenge, but also the greatest opportunity because they're they are the first touch, the first, last, and primary touch point with the actual athletes that are participating in the sport. Yes, the brands have the influence, and yes, Atra has a certain influence, but at the end of the day, runners go to a race and they have an experience at that race that either tells them, hey, I want to continue to be a part of it, I'm going to continue coming back to this church, or you know what, this church isn't really for me. I really didn't like, you know, where I was sitting in the pew and I didn't like the pastor's message and things like that. Is that the way that you're viewing it as well? That this latter part, like the races, I wouldn't say it's the linchpin, but it's definitely the most intriguing of those levels of communication and, and, and outreach. Right. I, yes, it, it serves, uh, organizers serve a couple of purposes. And as a coach, and having listened to many of your podcasts, obviously our athletes, runners are motivated by having a goal. And in in trail running, it's being able to train for an event and then compete in that event and hopefully accomplish whatever goal that you've set. So one thing that these organizers do is set up goals and, and give people, you know, milepost out there somewhere to shoot for. The other thing they do in the church analogies, bring the communities together every once in a while and um, essentially celebrate. And in that celebration, you really get a sense for what the bigger community is like. And it's, it's pretty joyous. And you either really walk away from that feeling, that sense of way beyond what you expected, which was, I hoped for a result. I got my result or I didn't. But wow, I, I wasn't expecting this whole other feeling of like, I want to do that again. And I, I want to be part of this. There's something going on here that maybe I didn't experience in another sport. And I'm not exactly sure what it is yet, but I want some more of that. And so th- those two things happen at races. And if they're well run, you know, the feedback to the race director is usually dual great event, well-organized, the markings, the infrastructure, the volunteers, the medical support, terrific. That's all on the quantitative side. But a lot of the best race directors also here. And, you know, the people out there, the amount of support I felt, um, the the amount of love and joy that was there, the, the, the runners that I met from everywhere, yeah, that was actually even better. So that's the part that um, is critical to this community because if, if we didn't have the races, we would have trail running. We all, most of us spend a lot of time alone um, listening, listening to nature or listening to podcasts or, or books or whatever, and maybe your running mate, but it's a pretty solitary sport. And so it's only at these times that, that the communities get together and gather, do you really get the full sense that you're part of something bigger. And that's a pretty critical part of building communities, right? If you think about society, if you didn't have places to gather every once in a while, it's not nearly as tribal, right? As, um, as whether it's around a, a fire or it's in a church or it's a bigger environment, that's a pretty fundamental thing to society. Well, and we have a blueprint for that going on right now. I mean, the races are gone. 
right? This tribal, communal, very experiential happening that are that are races where everybody gets together, they have a common experience, we give everybody hugs afterwards, high fives, you know, and there's a big accomplishment at the end of the day celebrated with a beer and a belt buckle or whatever. Like those are not gonna happen for for the near future. And to time timestamp this a little bit, we're, we're recording this on April 29th. So it's right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And my one of my fears that I wanna get your, that, that I wanna get your take on, one of my fears is that if the ra- if the lack of races is prolonged to a certain extent, I agree with you that we're going to continue to trail run. We're going to continue to meet our mates and our training partners when we can out on the trails. We're going to continue to run out on the trails. And if anything, the uptick in the outdoor activity that we've seen, I take it as a good thing as much as people like to complain about this being more crowded, that being more crowded, there's more people out on this summit or whatever. I think overall that's a, that this is going to be a net a net positive. But my fear is if that if that lynch if that linchpin of the community, which are the races, if we go for a long enough period of time without having that communal and tribal gathering aspect during those races, I. I I'm not going to say that the community is going to going to deteriorate, but I do feel for the health of it in terms of how many people are participating, how many people get enjoyment out of it and things like that. I was wondering if you had any kind of comments on that aspect, because we're starting to, we're really, we're actually having a, you know, like a test tube scenario of that playing out right now. I certainly have a viewpoint um, and it's pretty encouraging for me. Um, when I first was introduced to trail running back in the late 80s, um, out in California first, then back in Boston with the trail animals, it was very small. So we're, we're talking about very small groups um, that would meet up and we'd just go trail run. We weren't really racing that much. It was just, you know, enjoying each other's company. And I was quite happy. It, it was very satisfying. It was very um, fulfilling. And so um, when we raced, and it wasn't that often, um, it was fun to get together. And and essentially what happened back then was you almost knew everyone. So it really was like going going to some local community um, um, activity. But it, it wasn't that I had to do it. It was just nice. It was a nice to have. Now, I think as we've grown as a sport, the competing part in racing has grown in stature. And so to your point, yeah, if we took it away now, if we never could race again, if we had to just go back to being in small groups and just running on the trails and enjoying nature and enjoying each other's company, would it completely um, disseminate, uh, would, it, would, it, would it annihilate trail running? No, no, it would decrease the, the membership for sure. But I, I don't think that's going to happen, number one. And two, um, I believe that we're showing the resilience that trail runners possess in this current COVID situation with a lot of innovative alternatives from coaches, from the athletes, from the organizers and saying, look, we're going to continue to run. We're going to find a way to run and we're going to find a way to reach out to each other. Even if it's electronically, we're still going to do it. And when this is over, 
And when we are allowed to come back out and play with each other again, it's going to be that much more fun. I really believe that. And I believe every trail runner in their soul believes that. And I think we will have that day will come. It'll come in fits and starts for sure. It's not going to be a light switch on. As uh, our governor here in California says, it'll be a dimmer. (laughs) But as we come back, we will gain courage and we'll gain enthusiasm and um, the landscape will have changed. So the runners won't have changed. We'll only be joined by a considerable uh, amount of new faces that are coming from the likes of Spartan and obstacle course racing and likely coming from triathlons and Ironman and likely coming from um, families that have been out enjoying nature, maybe for the first time um, because they've been shut in and they needed the fresh air. And so they go out and they have walks and they hike and realize, hey, you know, this is actually something we want to do post COVID. So there's a lot of sources of new trail runners coming. So I'm really encouraged by the growth potential. What is discouraging and and really tough to swallow is seeing so many of our colleagues suffering that are race directors. And many of them, it is their livelihood. And um, and it's there there are no clear answers to the problems that they're encountering. And and there's not a particularly good timeline. Um, so what happens is some of them may decide that it's not the right thing to continue to try to do and, and may um, go to something else in their life. And that will create a supply and demand inequity where we have a lot of runners coming in. That's the demand and maybe not as many races available. And that will create a temporary vacuum. And that's where the likes of the, the, the bigger operators will look at that and see there's growth. And now there's actually a playing field here that we can fill the void and let's step into that. And I think you'll see that. That's a natural evolution of a business that has gone through somewhat of a setback and now um, will come back roaring. And that's why having a clear understanding as those operators come into our sport, that, that they understand our ethos and understand that it is important to just not trample, to run to the front of the church and start preaching, but to really try to understand why we do this and to, to mirror that in the events that you, you put on for us so that you, know, you begin to adopt <clears throat> our values and we begin to appreciate the way you put on a professional uh, event and we can live and cohabitate quite nicely together and not ruin the community in the process. And by the way, I believe as a business person, if you understand that, you'll make a lot more money <laughs> than if, if you misunderstand it and, and you have an attempt to sort of ready, you know, fire aim and kind of have your gun handed to you. So is that your buy-in right now with the Ironmans and with the um, uh, with the Spartans that are starting to get into the sport? It's like, hey, listen, it's good for your business too. Like, not only are you going to fit into the church, fit into the co- to the community better, but make no doubt about it, they're coming into trail running to turn a profit. I mean, their business, they have to expand their business. And I completely agree with you that, there, that there's going to be this vacuum on the other side of this pandemic 
where race directors are just going to fold up their tent and go home because they don't because they don't want to do it either because they took a huge loss and let, let's be honest like it, you can you can provide some perspective on this as well through your organization in many cases being a race director is a really thankless job it's not very well paying the margins are very low if not, not if non-existent or you're taking a bath on it or you're doing it for charity and things like that. And yes, the community is good about thanking their race directors and things like that, but it's a tough it's a tough gig. Very few people get into it to be a gazillionaire and there's going to be a lot of people that look at the adversity that they are now facing with not being able to bring in revenue to to put their races on and go, "You know what? I I I can, my time is better spent elsewhere." And then therefore the kind of the vacuum is created. So what are, we're, back to my original point with all that, what are the, like the buy-ins that you are using to communicate to some of the organizations that are coming in, in order to help them like understand the community? Right. So it's pretty straightforward. If the reason that you're paying attention to trail running is, is to grow your business, then you're measured on how well you grow the business. Ultimately, it's profits and it's revenue. But at the end of the day, if you spend a lot of money to go after a market and it, and it fails, that's, you get an F. If you wisely spend your time and your money and it really grows well and you see it on the top and bottom line, then you get an A. And this is a, a sport that has fairly deep roots in terms of what it believes and why people do things. And yes, there is um, an enormous amount of growth that has come in the last 10, 15 years that would be from um, predominantly millennials um, with an increasing number of women. And so the demographics of the sport have shifted from the days when we did put on free races for charity and it was a smaller community. That, that group is aging out. I'm part of that group. And not aging out, but we're, we're, you know, we're in the minority now in terms of the number of people in the sport. So if I'm, you know, a, a, a global event sports event operator, I'm looking at the demographics and I'm looking at what kinds of things do those um, runners want and what they want are experiences. They want really good experiences and they understand the difference between quality and just you know, having something that's thrown at them. They also understand the need and the desire to want to um, have an organization giving back, helping the greater good. That's a very important part of the demographic. And so we have an opportunity to do all of those things. If you just take a breath and understand why people are here, you can put together events that, that reflect all of that and more. And that's a good thing for them because they're going to grow their business faster and they're going to be more sustained. And it doesn't interfere in any way with our mission at ITRA. In fact, all we do is help them. We're not here to tell people what the rules are. We're not here to tell people how to make money. That's up, up to the community to decide that for themselves. Um, our, our real goal is to make sure that they understand and, and, you know, 10 years from now, if we look back, the measuring stick for ITRA will be, is are the values as prominent then, 10 years from now as they are now? And that's what we've always measured trail animals by, is, is 25 years later, 
can we really put our hand on our heart and say that people understand the values and they're as important to them now as they were when we were 30 people? And I honestly believe that's the case. So that's why I have so much hope that regardless of the, you, know, you can't stop the growth. We, we could, we, we could sort of build, circle our wagons and decide that nobody's in and uh, that's it. We've had enough, um, but we're not going to do that. And, and you can't, you can't stop it. So you have to understand the growth. You have to embrace it. And then you have to try to figure out ways in which you can coexist. And that's, it's, it's really not, not more complicated than that. Yeah, I appreciate those goals and I really appreciate like from what a business perspective we would call values-based KPIs, right? Your key performance indicators for ITRA are values-oriented, not necessarily, okay, we're going to grow from 600,000 to a million to 1.2 million participants and, you know, it's X amount of revenue and things like that. I think, I think that that part of it, having that alignment is, is, is incredibly critical. Absolutely. Now, you know, we have to, we have staff and we have mostly volunteers, so almost all volunteers, but we have staff and we have some expenditures um, as a nonprofit. So we make that by having members, both organizers and runners. And in that case, there is um, a presumed exchange where if we ask someone for a euro or a dollar, they will get something in return for that. Um, and our other mission is to be a reference, be the reference for our sport, for our community. And what that means is it would be nice if runners from around the world had one place to go to answer, you have find answers to the questions they have about our community. And that could be gear. It could be uh, medicine. Uh, uh, it could be research. It could be training. Uh, nutrition, races, um, all of the above. Um, right now, it's pretty fragmented again. If you if you want to ask those questions, you might Google it. So you do search, natural search, or you, you may go to social media. But it's scattered, and there's an enormous amount of great things going on, but there's no really central place. And one of the things that we'll try to leverage in the future is technology. And, and that's a good that's a good timing because that's my background. I come from technology. And so I've always viewed technology as the foundation of anything that's to be built because you can scale things, you can rapidly be addressing the needs of the market, and you can be very agile. Really three important aspects. And ITRA is a little behind the curve on technology. It's, we have a lot of good technology, but we could have better. And I think with a little few turns of the screwdriver and a couple of swings of the hammer, we can have um, what I, I believe is going to be potentially one of the, the most innovative sports organization platforms in the world. And that's coming soon. And what that will allow us to do is then come back to the topic of a reference. And we, we really want to be um, the combo kayak so Kayak never does the transaction. If you're looking for, for tickets, for uh, airplane tickets, you search and you, get, you find the best deals. And then Kayak says, okay, this is the one you want. And they'll send you off to Delta Airlines, right? And that's where you finish the transaction. So they, they have a purpose there, which is to be um, 
uh, in the middle of an exchange. So that's one model. And the other is Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia is so powerful because it's, it's content comes from millions of people and, and particularly people that really know what they're talking about. Well, we have literally millions of trail runners and we have thousands of suppliers of information. And our goal will be to, to be the exchange so that if you have a question about, uh, and it'll be geo ontology, meaning be able to get your question down to where you are. So if you're looking for a trail or a running mate or a running store or a coach or information about an injury you have or a particular race, on and on and on, we will build the exchange, we'll call it the ETRA exchange, which would allow you to ask the question. And then we're gonna use really good search and good metadata to then get it down to a few places that have the answer. If it's looking for a coach, ideally CTS will be one of those answers. And then you click through and say, here, here, here are three or four resources that really fit your search. Go to visit their sites, connect with them, and they will take care of answering the questions that you have. Now, that's a very valuable resource. And in the future, when we build that, we believe that's a fair quid pro pro again for a membership, for example. Having runner insurance, where if you travel overseas and you race, and particularly if you're racing in um, it, it actually, by the definition of most insurance policies that come with travel, they exclude any any sort of sport or danger, right? Anything that's considered extreme, they're excluded. So um, you have to get a rider that specifically addresses extreme sports. We offer insurance at huge discounts to our, our runners if you just become a member. We have a performance index. So we rank 1.8 million runners around the globe from one to 1.8 million. And they're ranked based upon their performance and which kind of race they race in, which we have a rating system, which is also um, done across thousands of races. And that's a, that's a, a way for brands to figure out what athletes they might want to make ambassadors or put on their team. It's used by race directors to decide who they might want to provide an invite to or maybe um, give a, 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 um, a free pass and, and invite the athlete to come race. It's used by um, researchers, magazines, people that write about the sport to kind of decide who's the best in the world. Uh, and, and it's used by the athletes themselves for their own measurement of where do I fit? Where do I rank? Am I moving up? Am I moving down? Who am I going after on this list, you know, in my future? So it's a pretty valuable tool. Those are all the kinds of things that, that are behind the membership. If you, you know, want to have um, access to them and it's pretty straightforward stuff. So in summary, we, we have the values mandate that we talked about we also have the mandate to be the reference and we we've got some work to do for sure. But at the end of the day, if I come back to North America and particularly America and, and we can go one-on-one -on -one with an American trail runner and say, this is what ETRA does for you on the values and ethos side. 
And this is what we do for you on a service side. These are things that you, I, we really think you're going to be interested in. And for that, we would like your membership. If we can do that over and over again, and it's a genuine, even value proposition, then we can grow our membership by tenfold. And if we do that, we'll have more than enough um, income to do the things that we want to do, both on the ethos side and building a better and better reference resource. So again, it self-fulfills. And you're right. We're not trying to make millions and millions and millions of euros or dollars. We're not trying to build, you know, some gigantic organization. And by the way, we are not a rules body. We don't set the rules. We don't determine for people, you know, um, uh, how to do it. And we don't tell people what to do. That's not our job. Um, and so it's a pretty efficient organization, to be honest with you. Right. Um, it's, and it's very distributed. Not that complicated. Yeah, but the references piece of it is quite intriguing because I can tell you just as a, just from my experience being out in the space and being a coach, I get questions all the time on which race should I do? What coach should I find? You know, what's the good, you know, what's a good product for this? You know, what advice can I go over here for that? And the reason I've always, I've always appreciated being able to answer that question because I can drive them into coaching, right? It's what it, that's what I do for a living. But my first thought is, is somehow the massive search engines have failed that individual because I'm not their first line. Something else is their first line. They're going to Google whatever they're going to, whatever they're looking for before that. And sometimes the, the sheer volume of information is overwhelming and if some way, this is this is why this is intriguing. If some way Itra is curating that and presenting it to the athletes and the runners that are out there in a logical fashion, that kind of acts as like a pre-filter. That part of it is is actually quite quite attractive because of this extremely fractured nature that we have within trail running, where the information on all of the different races and everything is just everywhere. That's right. And, and that really is what we're going to do. So it's not that hard. Um, you need to have the right technology stack or, or what we call platform. And it needs to be extensible and modern and scalable. It needs to be multilingual. So, you know, when you try to go into um, new countries that are double byte language, like Cantonese, Arabic, um, Today, you know, there's a problem when we get race results and they're in double byte language. They're not anglicized or Latin. And we have to then convert all of that. And, and there's a lot of manual innovations. Well, if you have an open system, um, you can then ask the people that make those converters for a living and attach them to our um, if you will, our campus of technology and immediately just make the ask and that we, we get it back. They do it for us. And so we can then allow the more difficult regions and the more complicated problems to be solved locally. That's technology. Now let's go back to content. We don't want to amass the content. All we want to do is act as an exchange. So there are really good sites today that provide medical advice to trail runners. They're out there all over right. the world. I agree. They're hard to find. They're hard to find, but but they're there. And they're really, really good when you find them. So rather than asking the question, I always use the, uh, 
you know, at tra trail animals, we have a se almost 7,000 members in our Facebook page or group. And when someone asks a question, let's say it's about an Achilles heel and they say, ah, oh, I just got diagnosed with, with level three Achilles heel. What do I do? And, you know, our community is very, very um, gracious with providing answers. And, and that, that athlete will get 60 responses from our club members. And, and some of those answers might actually be coming from a PT or a doctor. And some of them may be coming from someone that's had a grade three uh, Achilles heel problem before and what they did. And some of it might be, um, you know, things they learned in the woods and wives tale. <laughs> you get all of that. And that athlete now has to process 60 different answers right. and determine, well, which one of these actually is the right answer. It's tough. There is no Yelp. Right. Yeah. And so um, what we'd like to do is take that same scenario and have them come to ITRA and put in, I'm in Boston. I have a grade three Achilles heel problem and I'm seeking an answer. I'm seeking advice and then I'm probably seeking therapy. Right. And we want to be able to use our engine to put you right at the doorstep of probably three or four solutions that are going to be in your backyard with the right answers. And hopefully, you know, in that case, it might be a PT. Right. It shouldn't be that hard. And, and that information exists around the world. It's just we've got to be able to pull it together. Now, how do you get that content in there? Well, if we have a federated technology, we're going to have people in the Boston area that will want to volunteer and say, let me have that little piece of the world because I know mm -hmm. it and I'm motivated. Think Wikipedia now and I'll keep it up. I'll make sure that the links and the curation is done really, really well because that's my little part of the world. That's my contribution to giving back. If we multiply that times thousands of people around the world that really know what they're doing in their respective regions, all we do is provide them the platform. But it's a federation of people actually contributing. It's the same philosophy that we do on the ethos and the values. We're just applying it now to information. But it's right. exactly the same model. Right. And so that's that's a to-do um Coop, it's not something we do today well, it's, but it's not that far in our future. And, and it is something that um, I think we're all really excited about at ITRA, and we hope that the community will find you know, it a really useful service. Well, I, I think you're kind of underplaying the enormity of the task a little bit. And I, I, I've got a, you know, huge grin on my face right now, if that's not coming through the audio. Um, why don't you describe to the listeners, like, what does the organization actually look like? Like, how many people are there? Where where are you all located? And I think that'll give a sense of of why I'm grinning so much, because it's it seems to me, for me knowing your organization, that you have a lot of great folks, a lot of which I've had interaction with, but compared to the magnitude of what you have just described over the last 40 minutes or so, that's a tall ask for the staff that you have. So who do you have? Where are they just in, ge just in general terms? And, uh, and am I thinking about this outlandishly that it, that it almost seems too big for its bridges? <laughs> There's 1.9 million runners if, if, to start with what do we serve? And we serve the runners. They're at the forefront of everything we do. There's 1.9 million people that's performance index have been indexed. 
there's about 200,000 runners that are, you know, uh, registered members of each right now. And there's about 3,500 race organizers. So it's a pretty good size and 32,000 races. So it's a pretty good size organization today. Um, the organization has traditionally been based in Chamonix because uh, Michelle Paletti, my predecessor, has been the founder, co-founder, and president of the organization since its inception in 2013. So he was there seven years, and it made sense to have it uh, uh, there in Chamonix. It actually cohabitated offices for a number of years with UTMB. Um, so there's a small group of people, a handful of half a dozen people in Chamonix, in the Chamonix region that are now staying at home, of course, and working um, as full-time staff. We call them our professional team. Um, with, with Michelle's departure um, and in my election, we have shifted the, the way that ITRA is structured simply because we're trying to prepare for what we call Chapter 2 or ITRA 2.0, right? The first chapter were the first seven years, and it grew rapidly, and, and, and Michelle and his team just yeah, can't say enough good things about what, what, what has been created here. But now the sport's accelerating even more. As we talked about earlier, the texture of who's going to be providing organizations and races is going to change. And so we have to prepare for that. And we also need to get back to the basics of making sure that we are um, teaching and protecting the values and being this reference that that is in our charter. And the, the, the big two big differences will be technology will be at the core of everything we do going forward. And that, you know, am I biased? Of course I am. I mean, I, I don't know how to do anything, <laughs> even play a guitar without technology. So it's just in my DNA. And two, we, we really are going to be in a distributed world where it is more like Wikipedia, where we have a lot of people holding up their hands saying, I want to be part of this movement of ITRA. How can I help? Like, I really want to help. And up to now, it's been hard to figure out how to onboard people, tomorrow it's not going to be hard at all. It really is going to be pretty straightforward, and we will take that help and some. And so rather than a few people trying to do remarkable things, we want a whole lot of people doing small, remarkable things that add up to something big. And if it all comes back to a really well-built technology platform, then we can do it. Now, who do we use for that? How do we do that? Well, we'll be using third parties for sure. Yeah, we, we're we're not a software company, so we'll use um, trusted partners to help build a, a, a very modern infrastructure, and then that will allow us to bring on other third parties into our world. I use the analogy a lot with our team as a college campus. Imagine having the the piece of land and and all of the campus architected with all the different buildings, you know, the, the classrooms and the dormitories and the university center and the library and the medical center. But, but you only start to build, you know, one dormitory and one classroom. All right. And, and you have the map and the buildings all match and we built the first two. And then as time goes on, you build the commissary, you build the university center. And some of those buildings like the medical center might be built by a third party because they're specialty at building medical centers, right? And so, but it all still matches. It all fits on the plot map 
and it all um, is tied together. That's exactly what our vision for the future of the technology is, is we're not going to do this alone. We're going to have a lot of help, both in the content and creating the exchange, but also in the technology that we use to translate, the technology that we use to re reach deep into markets that are more complicated, like China. Right. A, a tremendous market opportunity for us, but not without its unique characteristics that need to be done inside out, not outside in. Um, and there's many other markets that we, we hope to help grow trail running in that that have similar unique aspects to them um, and so on. And, you know, even even in this covid period now, our thinking is turning towards what can we be doing in the next 30 days to help our runners and to help our organizations prepare to come out. And then what can we be doing during that coming out period, which is definitely going to be months. Again, it's going to be the dimmer coming on slowly. Right. What can we do to keep them informed? What are the tools and, and, and ways in which we can help the community come back to life? And we have time to put the infrastructure in place. We have time to you know, think about what are the most valuable services. And then when things are running, hopefully um, the new normal, well, then we, you know, we'll hit our stride. And it's no different than training. You know, if, if the aspiration is to train for 100, you know, we got we to gotta put the training in now. And, and we all get that because that's every single person that I'm involved with at ETRA is a trail runner. <laughs> Every single person that holds their hand up out in the field is a trail runner. And we don't have to talk about the ethos. We don't have to talk about tenacity and grit and knowing how to come back and come back because it's what we do. And so the beautiful thing is, is you can go right to well, what do you got? What do you need to do? Right. And we can cut through all the normal translations and just say, here's a thing we need done. And we can rely on those people to do it. And that's the power of, you know, serving the trail running community is th this is a pretty um, talented group of individuals, both in their physical skills, but also their mental toughness, their tenacity, their ability to take on responsibility and do things. I mean, you don't, very few of your athletes, I'm sure, just get up one morning and decide to go run a 50, probably against your right. good counsel. Some do. But most of them have to plan, they have to train, they have to put a lot of time into ultimately achieving their goal. So we're, we're riddled in a good way with all that talent. And our, our role is to try to figure out how to marshal it for the good of ourselves, right? This isn't like for some profit-making entity. We're doing all these things to make our own community better. And people really get turned on by that. Yeah. And just like a, a trail ultra runner uses crew to help like, or they leverage their crew to help improve their performance at a race pacers, people at aid stations and things like that. It seems like you guys are leveraging people outside of ITRA to get your mission accomplished. And some of that leverage comes from the community itself. I mean, if the community is providing a lot of the content and the answers that then get put into this curation funnel that you guys are, that, that you are building, it takes the, it kind of almost serves as dual purpose because it takes the burden off of your limited staff, but also still maintains that ethos of being a community, uh, a community centric service where the answers and the information is actually coming, coming from within the community 
versus exactly. outside of the community. Well, let's let's use the example that we both experienced in the Yost Valley in Italy last. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> here we go. We had to bring it up. We had to bring it up. Yeah, so here we go. Look, it's it is it is nine hundred plus or minus runners. How many how many tens of thousands of people? are there in, in the form of crew, in the form of volunteers, in the form of all of the people from all of the towns and all of the infrastructure to put on that event that essentially are probably 10x, so it's 9,000, maybe more, that aren't doing the race. But somehow, some way, they're putting in ungodly amounts of hours happily gleefully, as we saw, joyfully. And, you know, that's an extension of one trail runner times 10 times whatever. That is the attraction of this community is why are race directors surrounded by all these volunteers? Right. (laughs) And the answer is, is because they have the same feeling that's being thrown off by the community as we do as actual runners. And that, that right there is the ethos, and that right there is what makes it special. And coming all the way back to why is ITRA here, it's to make sure we don't lose that. Because yeah. if we do, then race directors have to start paying people to do right. all that stuff. And athletes have to start paying people to be crew and pacers. And it all starts to feel very corporate. And Nowhere in there is room for, you know, the ethos. So yeah. we, we, under any circumstances, can't let that happen. Yeah, I've always thought about it in terms of the impact that uh, that happens as a person doing a race always goes far beyond that person locomoting for 50 miles or 100 miles or in your nice case in Tour de Gionde. However long that course ended up being, I thought it was like 200 and 30 miles by the end. Always, always measured in days. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Multiple, multiple days. But that impact, no matter how you measure it, whether you take the really cliche economic impact, which a lot of race directors like to do, or you just take the social impact or emotional impact or inspirational impact, it always goes far beyond one person actually locomoting those miles or one person traveling to an area and spending money on a hotel and at the restaurants and things like that. There's this, there's this multiplier effect that always happens whenever you have these community races that I a hundred percent agree with you The towards the aunts, it has that on steroids just because of how involved everybody does have to be to pull that race off all of the communities and all the towns and all the volunteers and the people that are shuttling the yellow, the yellow bags and the medical staff and the, the support people that come from all over the world to support their friends and family. I mean, it just becomes this huge, you know, this huge ecosystem of people that it takes to, to pull that race off. We have the privilege. I have the privilege of, of being down the street from Western States trail. And so needless to say, very, involved and very committed to that event as well. One of the things we established a few years ago was when the international athletes come to Western States, we offer them pacers and crew, and we offer them a roof over their head by Auburn ultra running families that will provide them a bed and a hot meal, some logistics, show them the trail, all to really make them feel at home and and reduce their stress level. It's hard enough coming all that way and training for the race of their life. 
the response to that has been interesting. The athletes love it because it does reduce their stress um, and they meet these wonderful people and families. And so it's a really nice community and way to show off the American trail running ethos and spirit. But what we didn't expect was that the families are equally grateful yeah. because they've met these remarkable people and they remain friends uh, over the years, uh, needless to say, are invited to the homes of the athletes. So if they're from Bolivia or Portugal or from Hong Kong, they're invited to come and stay with them and show them their trails and show them their beautiful country and countryside. And that connection is, um, it's uh, a little almost inexplicable how deep it is. So yeah. that kind of exchange, for instance, if you come back to our ITRA exchange, imagine being able to connect runners that way around the world. Yeah. So if you want to go to Hong Kong and you want to find the trails and find someone to run with and maybe even stay in a, in a post-COVID world, we got to figure this out, but maybe even stay right at someone's home. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. And yeah. wouldn't that sort of reinforce who we are? And I think that's all within our reach. The staying under someone's roof in a post-COVID world. Well, that one we got to figure out. But but the rest of it, um, you know, uh, is all at our fingertips with a little bit of ingenuity, a little bit of effort. And boy, doesn't that sound like somebody training for a hundred miler? Hundred um, percent. Okay, we're gonna pivot a, a, away from Itra just a little bit for this like final section that I want to talk to you about. But before but before we do how would people learn more? Like how do people become, start to become engaged with each other? Because we started out this podcast with this North American audience and this podcast mainly has a North American audience is they're not going to, they're not, they're probably going to not even going to not even going to know what the letters in the acronym are. <laughs> That's another survey you could take right there. <laughs> so how do, how do, how does our North, how does our uninformed North American audience learn a little bit more about ETRA? I-T-R-A dot run. <laughs> That's where it starts. All right. We'll just leave it there at the website. Anything else you want to say before we, we get into some? your membership. Okay. All right. Let's pivot a little bit because I'd be remiss if I didn't take advantage of t like two really unique aspects that you can bring to the listeners. The first one is, is you, as you mentioned in the podcast, you've been trail and ultra running for a long time, almost since some of the, like some of the major origins of, of the sport, particularly in the U S. And so you've seen a lot of change, but also you've been a very, you've been very successful on the business side and been able to predict markets and in particular endurance markets, where they're going to ebb and where they're going to flow. Every year, Ultra Running Magazine comes out with their statistics on how many people are participating and what that participation looks like, male versus female, 50K versus 100K and 100 mile. And that's something that I know that you've had a keen interest on a number of different levels as well. And so I'll open the floor up to you. If we look forward five to 10 years from now, what are the big what are the big things that trail and ultra runners are going to see that are different compared to what they are now? Okay. Uh, starting with the runners, the participation rate. So uh, trail running's been growing approximately ten percent a year for almost fifteen years. So it's that's it's incredible, by the way. That like that right there is mind blowing for that long. The number of 
events has also been rapidly growing. And in fact, um, our research shows that there was an imbalance of too many races, so too much supply and uh, over, over the demand. And, you know, that's not uncommon in growing markets. It's a shiny object. And so it attracts a lot of interested parties because everyone figures, hey, it's the gold rush. You know, he's got a nugget. That guy's got a nugget. I know what he does. He's not any better than I am. I can get a nugget too. And we had a lot of nugget seekers and some of them are really, really good. And some of them aren't so good. And what the COVID has done is it's going to, as a Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, right, you see who has their bathing suits on. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and we got a lot of naked people and um, that's going to hurt. Yeah. That's going to hurt, and it's going to create the vacuum that we talked about. Our, our research shows that, that post-COVID, that there's no reason, just like the economy was raging along, and you know the reason we have a, an economic problem on our hands isn't because there was something wrong with the economy. Well, the same goes for the growth of trail running. The trail running will, will resume at 10%, but we actually think it'll be higher than that. And why? Well, there's three or four sources, and I mentioned all of them earlier in the podcast. One will be the, the millions of people that have discovered the great outdoors. And post-COVID will go, well, I was doing it because we kind of had to, just for peace of mind, and we couldn't really go that far from our home. And so we went outside and got some fresh air. But, you know, we really enjoyed it. And I wonder if I did this like as a habit now, what kinds of things could I do? Could I hike, find hiking clubs, nature clubs, orienteering, trail running, et cetera. And trail running will be on the list and it will benefit from people seeking part of the community, joining groups locally to say, hey, you know, I kind of like to learn how to do this and where do I go? And again, if we had the appropriate exchange, it would be very easy to get an answer to that question. So we think there's millions of people around the world that are in a category of going to start paying attention to trail running. We think that China, we know China is growing pretty rapidly, very grassroots. These are people that share precisely the same values as everybody else. We know that um, Spartan has put their foot into the sport and they will leave it there. And they are bringing with them um, uh, nearly a million uh, obstacle course race athletes and Ironman, as we know now, is buying back uh, to the bringing back to the U.S. Uh, Ironman, and with that, um, they're going. They they have uh, Tarwar and they have uh, Ultra Trail Australia already in their portfolio, and uh, I believe because trail running is growing, they will pay attention to trail running, and I think we'll see them as is a, a citizen as part of this UTMB has now UTMB international and they're growing across the globe. Um, uh, we haven't seen, uh, active yet. We haven't seen lifetime. We haven't seen three or four other international sports event organizers, but they're out there and it would not surprise me if you see some of them come in and, and some startups, by the way, some, some executives that come off of some of these other events and say, Hey, this is a great play here to, to, to fill this vacuum and to build something specifically for trail running. So that will all um, kind of even up the supply and demand with a little bit more consolidation on the supply. In other words, fewer players, 
bigger players, plenty of room for the mom and pops and for the one and twos. That's I'm not saying they're going away. I'm just saying there will be some consolidation. And that all breeds um, one thing, growth. And it breeds um, serious players, serious brands, and a lot of trail runners, you know, getting out there. And we're going to be reaching out into parts of um, the world that want to emerge, that don't have organized trail running. They don't have a club. They don't have an association. And part of what we're doing is reaching out to those communities and saying, well, let us help you build the infrastructure. Kind of here's, here's the 101 on how to organize a club. Here's how you organize an association. Here's who you want to belong to. Here's where you get the rules, right? Here's how you can begin to build your first event. That's part of what we do as well. So all for all of those reasons, I think the future is very, very bright for, for trail running. There is going to be um, some not so pleasant outcomes from COVID. And um, that's, it, it, it's just inevitable. That's what happens in any marketplace. But, but the, long, the mid view and the long view um, from, from a business standpoint and investment standpoint, it's, it's actually quite attractive. Yeah, I think your your point that the players that are in the industry, not just the race organizers, I actually look at this from a coaching perspective as well, because coaching market, it's a cottage industry, but there's competition in it. But from a coaching perspective, and you can even look at the other brands, nutrition companies, apparel companies, footwear companies, and things like that, there is going to be this overall proposition that the ones that don't have the bathing suits on when the tide when the tide rolls out, they're just not going to be in as good of a position, and they might, in fact, actually go away once all of this is uh, said and done. Which leaves the opportunity for the better built, the stronger, the ones that have you know better leadership, that have good customer base, loyal customer base, and things like that, to take a little bit more pieces of the market share. And in that case, this you know, this, um, this picture that you painted earlier of all these wild stallions kind of running around, they're just become, they're, they're bigger and different animals, I guess, to, to extend that analogy a bit. And I, I'm, I, I, I agree with you that the mid and long term picture is rosy, but I'm, I'm still not, and this is just my opinion. I'm still not quite convinced that, a huge consolidation of all of that. Let's just say that in theory, there's four big players in the race space, right? I'm still not convinced that that would be a good thing or a bad thing. And I think I think that proposition when a lot of ultra runners are looking at that going, oh my gosh, these 10 races that I'm used to the mom and pops running, now some other larger organization is running they can't visualize it, so it's just kind of scary to them. Right. If, if, if Just to bring clarity or specific numbers to your point, today we have the numbers. I'd say over 90% are one or two races for mm. an organizer. It's very fragmented. Yep. yep. So there's very few like UTMB or um, Jamil, right, yep. that, right, that have, you know, more than – even five, five, five is a lot. So I'm suggesting in, in, in round two here that it's still going to be up in the probably 80, 80%. Oh, huh. interesting. Okay. 
So you're going to have some some um, fallout, but it's not like it's going to go seventy percent consolidated to the big players. Yeah. It's it's yeah. too mature a market and it's too fragmented for that to happen. So there's room for bigger players to come in, but but you're 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 not going to see this this enormous turnover like you might have seen. Um, in triathlons where Ironman, you know, there's four players really in triathlons and, and then there's everybody else. And I'm not saying that, that that Ironman franchise and the others like Vine, Vine, Vineman and others, they were built early enough that they, they, they caught all the growth. And that's exactly what uh, Tough Mudder or Spartan or Rugged Maniac have done in OCR. They caught it early and they were able to capture most of the incoming. The stallions, the mustangs—they're—they're they're long gone. They're—they're they're way, way, way long gone. And it's only in the the new and emerging markets that you might stand a chance to dominate. So you 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 could maybe do that in China. You could maybe do that in parts of Africa where they're really emerging, and you might have one or two players that get most of the events. That's possible. But on a global basis, no. If, 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 if the big players get more than 20% of the market share, I'd be very, very surprised. Yeah, the, the other thing confounding that, though, is the scaling is much more difficult because you have, especially in North America, because you have all these permit caps that are you know 200 runners big, being able to scale a large organization up in terms of numbers of participants when you have to replicate that race model, that race business model, sometimes multiple times across a weekend, it's just, it's just it enormously more difficult as opposed to an Ironman model or a Tough Mudder model or an OCR model where you can bring thousands of pe- tens of thousands of people into one singular race and grow that race just or grow the participants just from that one single race. Here you've just got the proposition where it's like 100 here, 100 there, 200 there, 300 there, 100 there. And it's just like, to, to do it as an organization is just really logistically difficult. It's, it's, it's inefficient. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. The fact that we're, we're trail runners, not road runners. Right. And that we are 90 plus percent running on property that's local, state, federal, government owned, um, makes it so that there's caps, that there's limitations, that there's impact, environmental impact issues. And, and then we're sharing these trails with all the other people that, that indeed make it very inefficient. Now, someone like Spartan, if you look at their model, they, they, they were creating venues where they, they had control over the venue mm-hmm. and, and they could replicate it over and over. And it made for a very efficient model. Right. Um, you could do trail running that way. You could, you know, kind of run around a dirt parking lot and, and, and do that. Um, and there's a place for that for sure. But that's traditionally not what we do. Yeah. Um, most of the races are a little more scenic than that, and thus you can't control the limits. And you're right. So, so even even if somebody wanted to take a dominant position, they would find it exceedingly inefficient, and therefore yeah. that is not very attractive yeah. as a business model. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. I think I think it's super interesting. Uh, you know, in an effort of full disclosure, I reached out to the Spartan people uh, back in February to bring them on the podcast, and they're they, they stood me up. 
they agreed to do an interview and then didn't show up for it. So we'll, we'll see if that tune changes after COVID. This is all before the pandemic came around, but I still would love to bring them on. They have an open invitation to come on and, and tell us what they're trying to do in the trail and ultra running space. I'm completely open to that. And I, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by their ideas and their business model and what they can potentially bring to the space. I don't, well, I certainly, I'd be happy to help connect you. There you go. Yeah. Um, I I think that they, I know they would like to come on. Um, so let me help you do that. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I, I, I don't, I don't know exactly why the whole thing fell through, but I was a little disappointed that that it was, and I would love to have them back on. I have nothing against them. I'd love to hear from them. Um, all right, Bob, we're gonna let you go, man. I really appreciate your time. I know that you got a ton of stuff stacked up for for today. Other than the acronym ETRA, is there anything else you want to leave the listeners with? You know, I, just get out there and let's have some fun. I love it. I love it, Bob. All right, man. Well, we'll see you on the trail soon enough. I hope I make my way out to the Western States course and we can share some trail miles at some point. Might be several months from now, but I'll be looking forward to it nonetheless. Yeah, well, we look forward. You got a roof over your head with us here and a a beer and a pizza in your belly and somebody to run the trails with you. Oh, man, that sounds so good. All right, I'll take you up on it for sure. Thanks again for the opportunity. All right, folks, thanks for listening to Bob and I today about all things ITRA and a little bit of prognostication on future of trail and ultra running and you know i think that after this covid19 pandemic works its way through the world we are going to see a much different landscape in the trail and ultra running space maybe spartan is a part of that maybe iron man is a part of that maybe some of the races get consolidated who knows we're just going to have to see at the very tail end of it um uh As a little bit of follow-up, I did uh, get in touch or back in touch with the good folks over at Spartan and invited them back on the podcast. Hopefully we can get that out to you folks sooner rather than later. I think that is going to be another interesting conversation. Appreciate Bob for his time here in the podcast. I appreciate you guys listening to the podcast as well. And big special shout out to the new editor and post-production specialist, Michael Carson. If you guys have not noticed the last couple of podcasts, we have taken the quality of it up a notch. And that is due entirely to Mr. Carson's hard work and really putting up with me on the front end of it to really get these podcasts uh, to sparkle a little bit more. I hope you guys enjoyed it all. If uh, you do have some time, go ahead on over to iTunes and give this podcast a rating or a review. Helps the podcast out a lot. Appreciate the heck out of everybody listening. We will see you out on the trails at some point. And until then, stay healthy, stay safe, and keep training your butts off. We're going to eventually get back to the races, but until then, keep running people.